we, uh, we sing many of the Gettys songs here at Boone Trail uh, for obvious reasons. They are scripturally deep, and that is one of their songs, Mother's Prayer, this morning on this Mother's Day. History has recorded some amazing births for us over the years. There was the birth of the Dion sisters in, in Canada. For the first decade of their lives, they were Canada's biggest attraction, bigger even than Niagara Falls. They were the first known set of quintuplets to survive infancy. Quintuplets, that's five children. Dear heavens, much to be thankful for on this Mother's Day, that I am not the father of quintuplets, being the leader of the pack. They were born May 28, 1934. Now the first recorded set of sextuplets, that's six at one time, were born on January the 11th, 1974 in Cape Town, South Africa. The, the first recorded that survived infancy, I should say. And then, of course, on November 19, 1997, the date that the first set of septuplets was born and survived infancy, the McCoy septuplets reached their maturity just last year, in fact. And, of course, on July 25, 1978, there was another birth that was recorded, not four, not five, not six, not seven, but actually just one. Just one. Louise Joy Brown was her name, and she was born in Oldham, England, the world's first test tube baby in vitro fertilization. And so we have recorded for us all sorts of remarkable births throughout history, but the most remarkable birth of all is the one that we read about in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last week with the instance of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, a young teenage Jewish girl betrothed to a man named Joseph. And he shares with her the most startling news she could possibly imagine, that she was going to have a son. And his name would be called Jesus. We pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, after Gabriel's announcement to Mary that she would conceive, that she would bear a child, and the question becomes obvious from her, verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Supernaturally conceived in the womb of a virgin without the means of a human father. 
This, this core truth, foundation of the Christian faith, many have sought to undermine the doctrine, to explain it away, to simply disbelieve it, to postulate all sorts of alternative theories, but there is no other way to account for the fact that Jesus is both God and man at the same time than through the virgin conception and the virgin birth. There have been theologians that have come along and have said, oh, the word that is used here for virgin, it simply means a young maiden. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 7, when the prophecy was given, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And so nothing miraculous here, simply the fact that, that Mary was a young maiden. Well, I'm going to tell you now, that would be of incredible consequence to Mary because she was the one who had the most incredulous response of all, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary certainly understood what was taking place here in the angel's announcement to her. And so she understood something miraculous, something supernatural was taking place. If Jesus was just a man with human mother and father, then we have a problem because he could not have been the Savior. And if Jesus is not the Savior, then there is no salvation. And if there is no salvation, then you and I today are lost in our sins and destined for an eternal hell separated from Him. When you look at the comparison here in Luke's Gospel between the earlier visit by Gabriel to a priest named Zechariah and compare that to his, his intrusion in the life of Mary here to announce that she will have a child as well. There are obviously similarities between the two. When Gabriel appears to Zechariah, it likewise is an impossible situation. Zechariah is old. His wife Elizabeth is old. She has been barren for her life. And yet the angel Gabriel speaks to this old barren couple and says you're going to have a child. An impossible situation. Likewise, Gabriel appears to Mary and says into this impossible situation, even though you are a virgin, the Spirit of God will overshadow you and you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. Impossible situations across the board. And yet in the midst of that impossibility, God does great work. You even see similarities in the responses of the two. In Luke chapter 1, verse 18, Zechariah, when he hears that he's going to be a father, he says to the angel Gabriel, How shall I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. How will I know that this is true? Likewise, Mary comes in verse 34 that we just read, and she says, How will this be? And yet we know there's a difference between the two, don't we? We know there's a difference between the response of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and the response of the angel Gabriel to Mary. If you remember when Zechariah asked his question, how shall I know this? The angel said, oh, you'll know it. Because you haven't believed, you're not going to speak again. You will be mute until the time that the child is born. And yet Mary comes along and says, how will this be? And the angel begins to explain and illustrate for her. Why the difference? Why the difference between these two responses and, and the response of Gabriel to the question that was answered, why was one in essence condemned but the other one was not? 
Well, let me illustrate it from the life of Abraham. You'll remember Abraham in your Old Testament. Abraham has much in common with, uh, with uh, uh, Zechariah, and his wife Sarah has much in common with Elizabeth. Both of them are old. Both of them are without children. And, and God appears to Abraham at 100 years old and his wife Sarah at 90 years of age, and God tells Abraham that he and Sarah are going to have a child. And we're told that there is a response that Abraham has and a response that Sarah has. Both of them have the same response, but there is a difference between the two. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, when Abraham is told what God is going to do in giving him a son, we read that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. If you were 100 years old, told you are going to be a father, you'd do the same thing or have a heart attack and fall on your face, one of the two, but it wouldn't be what you, oh, well, that'd be great, fantastic, we'll just go, no. Abraham falls on his face and laughs. And then, when the message is confirmed to Abraham, standing outside their tent, and Sarah is kind of eavesdropping in on the conversation and hears that she's going to be a mother, we read in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself. When you read the text, you'll discover that Abraham was never censured for laughing. He, he laughed rightly. He laughed for joy. The very thing he had been hoping for, the very thing he had been wanting, a son, and now God shows up and says, you're going to have a son, and out of joy, out of delight, he laughs. But Sarah was censured in her laughter. Why? Abraham laughed, but he wasn't censured. Sarah laughed, and she was. Why? What is the difference? Well, Sarah's laugh was the laugh of unbelief. She thought it was impossible that at her age she would have a child. And she laughed at the very idea of it. This is too absurd. This is totally ridiculous. Abraham, on the other hand, we're told, believed the word of God, and out of his delight and out of his joy, he laughed to outward actions that, that as we look on outward appearances are so very similar. In fact, they're so similar that we think if we condemn the one, we must then condemn the other as well. But remember that God doesn't see as man sees. We look on the outward experience. We look on the externals and we make assumptions from that. But God looks into the heart and he knows what's going on deep within the recesses of our thoughts and our lives. God looks at the heart and he can see what we never can. So can we take just a moment and apply this to ourselves for just a brief moment this morning? Outwardly things look so similar, but inwardly our hearts may be so very different. Throughout the time of our gathering here, we have together sung the same hymns with one another. We have bowed our heads and we've prayed together with one another. But the question in all of this is, where was your heart in the doing of that? Where was your heart in what we do together as God's people this morning. One may have sung with joy at God's redemptive work in Christ, while another may have sung mere words going through empty routine and the motions that were before us. Have you been there? Where is your heart in all of this? 
One may have prayed thankful to God for His good provision and seeking His favor, while another may have let empty words leap from an empty heart, not embracing the great God to whom we direct our prayers. Where is your heart in all of this? Outwardly, things may look so very similar, but what matters is where is our heart in the midst of all of this? We can simply come. We can go through the motions one step to the next, and our hearts be so far, so separated from God. In fact, it was the thing that Jesus condemned the religious leaders for in his day. They praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Where is your heart? You see, we can go through the motions and we can fool those around us. You, you can fool those sitting next to you. You can, you can fool your Sunday school teacher. You can fool your children. You can fool your spouse. You can fool the pastor. But God cannot be fooled because God doesn't look on the outward experience. God looks within the heart. So there's a vast difference here between Zechariah and, and Mary. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Mary says, how will this be? Zechariah, in disbelief and doubt, demanded evidence, demanded a sign before he would ever believe this. How shall I know this? As though being alone in the temple, and an angel suddenly appears before him, scaring the wits out of him. So that Gabriel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. The plan of redemption is in motion. You're going to have a sign. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? What is my sign to this? Zechariah demanded a sign before he would believe the pronouncement of God's plan. And Mary, of course, saw the human impossibility as clearly as Zechariah did. Of course she did. That's why she asked, how will this be since I am a virgin? But her heart did not reject the possibility in unbelief. She doesn't come demanding a sign so that she might believe. She comes seeking understanding of what the angel has said to her. And friends, listen, when our heart is right, God is never opposed to our seeking to understand His ways in history and in our lives. He's never opposed to that. When our heart comes, openness and rightness before Him to say, I don't understand this. God's not opposed to that. He's not obligated to explain it to us but he's never opposed to us seeking him and seeking his ways. Again, I ask, where is your heart? Is yours a heart of unbelief? Demanding to see a sign, demanding to see something tangible before you will come to a point of trust and belief? Or is yours a heart of belief, not understanding and seeking understanding, but trusting God nonetheless? That was the difference between Mary and Zechariah. God looks into the heart, and when He looks in your heart, when He looks in my heart, what is it that He sees? Does He see belief and trust and faith? Does He see doubt? fear and unbelief. See, the danger for us is not that we would probe the ways of God too deeply. The danger for us is that we would probe with the wrong spirit and the wrong heart. 
a desire to know more of God's wisdom and an humble readiness to be taught something new. God is delighted in that. He is pleased with that. And this was Mary's heart. Where is your heart? Where is your heart this morning? That's that's Mary's question. How will this be? I don't understand this. I don't understand how this will come to be. How will this happen? She doesn't demand a sign that it will happen. She says, I don't understand how it will happen. And so Gabriel explains, verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Spirit of God will come upon you. And this child that will be born is going to be holy different from any other child that has ever been born. We run across this phrase, the the Most High, here and also in verse 32. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. It is the Hebrew word El Elyon, one of the names for God. It emphasizes His sovereignty. It emphasizes His omnipotent rule over heaven and earth. And it's emphasized here in just these few short verses as the angel speaks to to Mary as a way to, to emphasize to her that God is able to do this. He is sovereign. He is in control. The Spirit will come upon you, overshadow you, surround you, encompass you. This child will be holy. See, the thing that makes Jesus different, God in the flesh, God and man together, everyone else who has ever been born, you, me, Everyone who has ever been born, with the exception of Jesus, has been born a sinner. But Jesus, we are told, will be called holy, the Son of God. In essence and nature, God. Then the angel in verse 36 gives a sign to Mary telling her what has already been accomplished. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. God's already at work, Mary. Just like He has been throughout history, you've not heard from Him recently. The prophetic words have ceased over the past four centuries before He begins to speak again here to Zechariah and to Mary. But God is still at work, Mary. And your relative, your cousin Elizabeth, is also conceived. She who was called barren, is barren no more. How can this be? Well, verse 37 is the clincher for us. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be... If God can take the womb of an old, barren woman and plant life within it, if God can take the untampered womb of the Virgin Mary and plant life within it, surely nothing is impossible with God. I wonder, church, today if we really believe that. 
I wonder today if we really believe that nothing will be impossible with God. I think that if really we believed that, there would be much less hand-wringing, much less worry, much less anxiety within our hearts and souls, recognizing that nothing will be impossible with God. Think of his track record. Think of his history. This same God who created the entire universe out of nothing. This same God that parted the waters of the Red Sea. This same God that provided food for the wanderers in the wilderness. This same God who could speak through a donkey. This same God that could raise the widow's son in Zarephath. The same God who could be with the three Hebrew children in the burning furnace. The same God who could be with Daniel in the light. The same God who could feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. The same God who could raise Lazarus from the dead. The same God who could walk on water. The same God who could raise Jesus from the dead. Nothing will be impossible with God. Why do we doubt Him? Why do we question Him? He is able to save you. He is able to sustain you. What will be your response to this God with whom nothing is impossible? In verse 38, here it is. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now I want to ask you a question this morning. For all of our scientific advancements, for all of our technological wisdom, we in many ways have attempted to smart ourselves right out of God and the need for Him. Do you think for a moment that you have a more difficult time believing in the virgin conception than Mary did? You think it's more difficult for you to believe that than it was for Mary? It happened to her. Let us learn a lesson from her. Let us learn a lesson here from Mary's response to get down on our knees and acknowledge that we are the Lord's servant. That we are His servant. Learn from Mary's humility. Behold, the word literally means slave. I'm the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Learn from Mary's bravery. What would happen when she was called upon to share this news with Joseph? And we know the story now. What must it have been like for her? How scared that young teenager's heart must have been to know she was going to have to come to Joseph and share with him that she was pregnant. Not in the way he thought, but she was pregnant nonetheless. Think of the public disgrace that she endured. To be thought of as an adulteress, Imagine the disgrace she experienced. 
and yet the bravery in which she lived. Let it be according to your word. Knowing all that she might face, not fully comprehending all that she might face, she embraced the will of God without regard to what it was going to cost her personally. Learn from Mary's submission. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If you're one of those who writes in your Bible, takes notes and makes marks and things of that nature, you could write right here next to verse 38 that this is a summary of the Christian life right here in one verse. Here's the summary of the Christian life. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Lord, I'm your servant. Do what you will. That's what Mary said. That's what the Christian life is all about. So I ask you this morning again, where's your heart? Where's your heart this morning? Would you be able to say, I ask it hypothetically, I understand hypothetical questions mean nothing. You can say whatever you want to. But understanding that God looks into the recesses of our hearts and knows our thoughts, would you be able to say this morning, I'm your servant, let it be according to your word. Would that be your prayer this morning? Lord, I'm yours. Whatever you want. If not, May I lovingly call you to repentance this morning. May I call you this day to confess that before the Lord and ask that He change your heart so that your desire becomes only what He wants in your life. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Jesus. You've never trusted in the Lord the Messiah who was born to provide salvation for your sins, maybe you've never trusted in Him. You obviously can't say, I'm your servant, let it be to me according to your word, because you've never trusted in Christ. And so today, can I call you to come in repentance? Can I call upon you today to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Can I call upon you today to come in acknowledgement of your sinfulness before Him that you are a sinner in need of salvation? Do I need to convince you of that? I think not. None of us needs to be convinced of that, I'm certain. We know our own sin. But friends, what you need to know today is the Savior who takes your sin upon Himself and dies in your place. So if you don't know him, I call upon you. There is an urgency about this. There's a necessity to this. Without Jesus, you face eternity separated from God. Why would you take that chance? Why would you belabor for another breath? 
why would you not race into the arms of Jesus in confession and repentance of sin? Why would you not come? Today, if you need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, we invite you to do that. Right now, where you sit, you don't need an invitation. You don't need a song to be playing. Right now, where you are, would you call upon Jesus, receive his grace, and ask him to save? Today, if you're a Christian, but you've not been living in surrender to Him, if you've not been living in submission to Him, then I call us together to repentance that God might have His way with us. Do you need to surrender to Him? Do you need to submit to His Lordship and what He would do in your life? Father, this day we thank You We thank you that you have given Jesus as our Savior. That you have brought him into this world through this miraculous means of virgin conception and birth. That that with this you display that he is God in the flesh. That he is the Holy One. That he is sinless. And in being sinless, he is able to take our sin upon himself. And Father, I pray today that there would not be a soul leave this place without realization and understanding that forgiveness is theirs, that heaven is theirs, and that they have been granted a life and peace with you. Father, I pray for us as your children that we would be quick to submit to you in all things. That we would, like Mary, be able to say, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Bring us all to that place, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.